Good morning, friends. Our reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and if you'd like to follow along, it's printed on page 6 of the bulletin. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful to the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline 
or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Thanks be to God. We're continuing our study of the book of First Corinthians, uh, a, a long-term study here, so little by little, working through that book. Uh, but let's pause and say a word of prayer together before we continue. Jesus, uh, we know you are here, we believe you are here, and we believe that you give uh, power to your word. And so as we study your word, we pray that you would give us power to believe, to submit ourselves to this word to see you in all your glory and power. And we pray that you would change our hearts, change our community, and through us, we pray that you would use us in all the different spheres of life that you've called us to. We pray that we'd be agents of your kingdom. We pray that your word would go forth through us. So please be present. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An athlete rallies her discouraged teammates with a stirring halftime speech. A church member quietly sets the tone in the community by their self-sacrificing and joyful example. A stay-at-home parent manages three mini-crises while also promoting a nurturing environment for their toddler. A public official responds to a tragedy with a timely word and with decisive action. In each situation, we hear stories like these and we think to ourselves, what a leader, what a leader. But what is a leader? And do our notions of leadership square with what the Bible says about leadership? Sometimes, by God's grace, they do. At other times, they don't. As pastor and author Scott Sauls, who was our fall retreat speaker several months ago, recently wrote, In America, credentials qualify a person to lead. In Jesus, the chief qualification is character. In America, success is measured by material accumulation, power, and the positions we hold. In Jesus, success is measured by material generosity and humility in the people whom we serve. In America, leaders crave recognition and credit. In Jesus, leaders think less of themselves and give credit to others. In America, leaders compare and compete so that they will flourish. In Jesus, leaders sacrifice and serve so others will flourish. In America, leadership often means my glory and happiness at your expense. In Jesus, leadership always means your growth and wholeness at my expense. In America, the strong and powerful rise to the top. In Jesus, the meek inherit the earth. The Christians in ancient Corinth in Greece weren't Americans, of course, but they, like us, struggled to understand the nature of Of leadership. They were lining themselves up behind certain leaders in the church, the Apostle Paul, Peter, Apollos, and others, and it was dividing the church, tearing the community apart. 
So here in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, we're given some lessons about leaders and about followers and about the way that the cross of Christ transforms the way that we follow and the way that we lead. The apostle's focus is on leadership in the church. That's what he's mainly talking about, but the basic principles And the priorities that are given here apply to leadership of all kinds, which is what makes this passage relevant to every single one of us. Because we're all followers in some ways, right? And because most of us are all leaders of some kind, whether if you're a a parent or a motivated neighbor or a supervisor at work, or a popular friend on your block, or a volunteer in the community, or a mentor to a neighborhood child, as author and counselor Dan Allender defines leadership, anyone who wrestles with an uncertain future on behalf of others, anyone who uses her gifts, talents, and skills to influence the direction of others for the greater good, is a leader. What we find here in this passage, the first thing we find are characteristics of unhealthy followers. We'll start with followers first. uh, Characteristics of unhealthy followers because that's what the Corinthian church had become, a bunch of unhealthy followers. The second thing we find in this passage are characteristics of of healthy leaders. Because as followers, we need to know what we're looking for. And as leaders, we need to know what we ought to be. So let's take a look at each of those in two parts. First, uh, characteristics of unhealthy followers. What do we see marking out unhealthy followers? Well, three things. Number one, unhealthy followers view their leaders as saviors rather than as servants. They view their leaders as saviors rather than servants. Because we all tend to idolize the leaders we follow. To us, they can do no wrong in our eyes. We offer them our deepest loyalties, a level of personal trust and commitment sometimes that should be reserved for God alone. We begin to even shape our identities around the leaders we follow. I follow him, I follow her, we say. And then we place unreasonable expectations on them, which is also why we can tend to be so disappointed in leaders, in our families, in the church, in society. When we put them on a pedestal, they always fall short. So what leader in your life have you been treating as a savior? Maybe a parent, an expert in your field, maybe an influential friend. See, right from the start in verse 1, Paul is very clear about how leaders are to be viewed. And he says it's this, as servants. Verse 1, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. It's really interesting. The word there, servant, originally referred to an under-oarsman. An under-oarsman. 
And I don't know if you know anything about ancient warfare, but ancient Roman warships were these big triple-decker boats with three rows of 25 oars. You might have seen pictures depicting this, or maybe movies. The under oarsman was a rower who who served at the, the bottom level of the ship. And so leaders, Paul is telling us, are not the all-star rowers. Uh, They're not the MVP, the the Nick Foles of the ship. I guess we got to give you that. (laughs) And most certainly, these under oarsmen are not the captains of the ship. No, leaders, God's word is telling us, are bottom-rung rowers who in that time were generally not ever visible. They were dispensable and usually the first to die when the boat sprang a leak during combat. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, regard us leaders as servants of Christ. That's how he describes even himself. Servant. And of course, you know, servanthood doesn't mean making yourself just less. Servanthood means putting others first. You may have heard the story about Aaron Feiss, who was among the 17 people shot and killed in last week's horrific shooting in Florida. Mr. Feiss was the football coach and security guard at Douglas High School, And according to reports, the coach used his own body to shield students from the hail of bullets, one of which killed him. As a school spokeswoman put it, he he died the same way he lived. He put himself second. It's the way he was. It's the way we ought to be in Christ. When I first read that, I was just humbled by my own ego, by just knowing how much my own personal impulse is always to put myself first. But God calls us to a different view of leadership, servanthood, not saviorhood, even in the way that we look at leaders. As a follower, do you view your leaders this way? As a leader, do you view yourself this way? Do you insist that others see you as a servant too? Because leaders are servants and there's only one Savior. There's only one name that defines our identity. We're baptized into the name of Jesus, no other name. So healthy followers know there's only one captain of the ship, And the rest of us are servants under oarsmen. There's only one captain of the ship, and his name is Jesus. Number two, unhealthy followers not only view their leaders as saviors rather than servants, they're also marked by superiority rather than humility. Unhealthy followers are marked by superiority rather than humility. In the second half of verse 6, Paul says to the Corinthians that they've become puffed up. They've become puffed up in being a a follower of one of us over against the other. In verse 18, he describes them as arrogant. 
I think it's because of this. As followers, we tend to live vicariously through our leaders. It's a funny dynamic. Here's the lame logic of our hearts. Because I'm the fan of the best band, I must be the best. Or because I'm on the email list of this great movement leader, I myself must be great. We tend to identify ourselves with those whom we associate ourselves. And then we take it a step further. I follow the best, so that must mean that I'm better than the rest of you. Unhealthy followers are always looking down on other people. Here's one way that you can tell that you're falling, falling into this. Do you have a critical spirit? Are you always pointing out the shortcomings of leaders? Or are you always critiquing the followers of other leaders? It's part of that arrogance, that puffed-upness that was dividing the church and ripping apart the fellowship of the Corinthians. This is why Paul reminds them of the grace of God in verse 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? In other words, everything you have and everything that you are is a gift from God, a gift that you've received, not a trophy you've achieved. And so why are you boasting and criticizing and looking down on those around you? As commentator Richard Pratt says very helpfully, those who recognize they have nothing apart from God's grace never raise themselves over others. Does that describe you, dear followers and dear leaders? Are you cultivating that kind of humility in those that surround you? Number three, thirdly, unhealthy followers evaluate leaders only by outward appearance. Tend to evaluate leaders only by outward appearance. This is what the Corinthians were doing. They were more informed by the surrounding culture's definition of leadership than the Bible's. Is that true of us too? It's worth asking. They were attracted to leaders who were outwardly, visibly impressive, who looked good and spoke well and had loads of visible gifts and talents. I was thinking about it recently, about how quickly we are in the church and outside the church to size up those who are deemed to be leaders and make a judgment call in our minds whether or not they're worth following. Not because you know their character, not because you know their story. Not because you know who they are behind closed doors, which God says matters most, but simply because you're judging based upon what human eyes can see. Attractiveness, gifts, talents, charisma, whatever the case might be. And all the Corinthians just wanted their leaders to be these things, which was precisely why they had begun to reject the Apostle Paul, because he wasn't all that to them. His ministry, in fact, was marked by a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship, a lot of hurt. And to the Corinthians, Paul and his ministry were just just too unimpressive, too broken, too ugly. Uh, Nothing to put on the front page of your church newsletter about. 
Nothing to boast about. Nothing that the world would celebrate about. Too ugly to be the real deal, they thought. That's why Paul says in verse 10, We are fools in your eyes for Christ, but you are so wise in your eyes in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we are brutally treated, suffering even for the name of Christ, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands as day laborers and manual laborers. See, the Corinthians had forgotten that even Jesus himself, the Savior whose name they bear, he was overlooked by the world too. The words of Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. You can almost hear the implications of Paul using the grid by which you assess and evaluate leaders, dear Corinthian sisters and brothers, don't you know, with those eyes, you would miss Jesus himself. In fact, it raises questions about whether or not you truly understand the centrality of the cross of Christ itself. Because it's only through that ugliness that you can see the beauty of God. It's only through that perceived foolishness that you can finally perceive the wisdom of God. It's only through a death that you can actually find the life of God. The resurrection of Christ, but first through the path of the crucifixion and the death of Christ. So what outwardly unimpressive leader, friends, Have you been overlooking? Or who might you right now be refusing to be led by? Because they don't talk good enough. Because they don't have letters after their name like you do. Because there's nothing as outwardly impressive about them, gifts or appearances, that make you feel like they're worth leading. Because you know by following them, you might just start to be following Jesus. These are just a few characteristics of unhealthy leaders, things that we need to watch for, things that Scripture warns us against. But but what should we look for in healthy leaders? So let's take a quick look, and this will be brief, at the second lesson of this passage, characteristics of healthy leaders. Leaders. Number one, we'll go through four things quickly. Number one, what we find is authority. Authority. The apostle guides. He directs the Corinthians. Verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you. He does warn them. He pleads with them in verse 16, I urge you, I urge you to imitate me. He's even a bit stern with them. But everything he does, he does out of love for them. 
which is another way of saying, with their good as his goal. And even with the affection of a parent. You might have noticed that he describes himself in verse 15 as their spiritual father in the gospel. After all, he was the one to first lead them to Christ, to an understanding of the good news of God's grace. He calls the Corinthians with deep affection, my dear children. And he also speaks of Timothy in verse 14 with fatherly affection. He calls him my my son whom I love who is faithful in the Lord. See, Paul doesn't stand back as an authoritarian leader, cold and distant. He gives his heart, but he does lead. He does exercise authority. You see, healthy leaders lead with authority and affection. They care about people, giving their hearts, not just their commands, not just direction. Healthy leaders don't use their authority authority to make a name for themselves. They devote whatever power and whatever responsibility that they've been given, they devote it to lifting other people up. And they serve not their own interests, not even always their own needs, but rather the interests of other people, especially those who are most vulnerable. Are there ways, friends, that you are using your role just to enhance your own reputation? Or are you using it to serve, to bless others, to lift others up? But you know, healthy leaders also refuse to shirk responsibility, too. Because servanthood isn't just about sitting back and passively passing the buck. Or running away from the authority that you've been given. Don't be mistaken. That's passivity and fear. That's a form of selfishness. Not to use the God-given responsibility and authority that you've been given to serve and to love. That's a form of selfishness, not servanthood. That's a lesson that I've had to learn over the years as a husband and as a pastor. To steward The calling, the responsibility, yes, even the social power that's been granted to me in service of others. So how about you? Are there ways that you've refused to exercise your God-given authority to serve others? What would it look like for you to dig in and to love? And all of this, of course, it describes the sort of servant leadership that we find in in Jesus, right? Right? Jesus himself said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And how did Jesus exercise that authority? He died. He laid it down. He died for our sins on the cross. That's what love looks like. That's what servanthood in exercising our authority looks like. Number two, not just authority, but leadership looks like accountability, embracing accountability. Notice what the apostle says in verse three, I care very little if I'm judged or evaluated by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Uh, let me clarify it. It almost sounds like Paul here is saying that he's free from accountability. But Paul actually repeatedly affirms the importance of accountability for leaders. Even later in this letter, in chapter 11, he talks, chapter 14, excuse me, he talks about the importance of prophets being subject to other prophets. In 1 Timothy 5, another letter, he talks about the discipline of leaders exercising that responsibility when necessary. So when he says, I care very little about human evaluation, it's the Lord who judges me, what he's really saying is that he's free from people-pleasing because he's accountable to God. That accountability to God works itself out in community, but ultimately it's to God. He even goes as far as to say, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. I mean, this is an incredible statement. See, many people say my conscience is clear, so I can't be wrong. As though my own sense of my rightness and wrongness is all that matters. The final arbiter, the final judge of all of my actions. Recently, even I myself found myself saying in my head, I can't think of any reason uh, why I'm wrong, so I, I must not be wrong. Paul says, no. Paul says, I know myself. I'm prone to self-deception. I'm very naturally someone that has a high opinion of myself. I'm a master at blinding myself to my wrongs. I have great ability to spin the facts. So I've learned not to trust even my own judgment of myself. Have you learned to say that about yourself? Only someone that's been humbled by the grace of God talks like that. See, healthy leaders not only accept, but actually even invite accountability. They tremble, them, tremble humbly before God, and they surround themselves with People and institutions that hold them to their responsibilities. And they don't let even their own conscience, even their own perception of their actions be the final judge of whether or not they're doing the right job. Friends, are there ways that you're refusing to come under the accountability of others? In a leadership role or even just as a member of the community, are you stiff-arming someone that's trying to speak into your life? You might just be stiff-arming the God of grace who wants to rescue you, who wants to love you. Authority, accountability, thirdly, integrity. Integrity. Did you notice how Paul invited the Corinthians to follow his example? Verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Imitate me. He says it again in chapter 11, verse 1, later on, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He actually repeats this again and again in other letters as well. In Galatians 4, 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. You got to understand, first of all, Paul isn't being pompous. Right? He's not saying imitate me because he thinks he's a perfect example. In fact, in all those other letters, he also calls himself the chief of sinners and the least of all the apostles. 
He's trembling even as he invites people to imitate him. But Paul understands for us to learn and grow, it takes more than just listening to verbal lessons. It takes more than just reading a book. It takes examples, models, real life, people that are walking with us, mentoring us, serving as examples to us. But he understands that this demands a certain kind of integrity to invite someone to watch you and to become like you. Integrity, which, by which I mean uh, consistency of words and behavior. Uh, being the same person that you are in public as you are behind closed doors. I mean, you might have noticed in verse 16, he even says that he's going to send Timothy, who will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. I'm going to send Timothy not just to remind you of what I've taught you, but to tell you about how I lived consistently with what I taught you. What boldness we find in this because leaders live with humble integrity. And Paul calls the people to see this and to imitate it just like a child unto her or his parent. Because a child always wants to be like mom or dad. Right? I I experience this a lot with my son, Jeremiah, who's going through this phase. And it's probably not a phase. It's lifelong in different ways. But where he just wants to do things like me and, and even look like me. Wants to dress like me. You might notice from time to time on Sundays he comes to church inexplicably in a dark blazer. Guess why? And he tells me, so I want to be like you. And with a beaming smile says, I look just like daddy. His imitation of me, in fact, is even a source of comfort. Earlier, just right down here, he comes up to me after running around with the other kids. And he says, daddy, I'm sweating just like you. And you see, imitation in that scenario actually is a source of comfort. Because there are times at school and other places where he'll be sort of poked fun of for being such a sweaty kid. He gets a little embarrassed and he's kind of sad. He comes to me and that's when I've said to him, guess who else sweats a lot? He says, Daddy, beaming, just for a moment, just for a moment. To be imitated like that, it's, it's flattering. As a father, it warms my heart. It's also intimidating to know that another little person has his or her eyes on you, watching your every move, wanting to become more like you. It's intimidating. We feel accountable in that sort of way. The apostle says that's what leadership should feel like. That's true leadership, where you put your whole life on display, which is exactly how God did it in Jesus. Not just sending down words from afar while he hid behind the big curtain of the Wizard of Oz in heaven, but he came in flesh and blood as a real person who walked in our shoes and lived everyday life with us so that we can see what love looks like, so that we can see what humility looks like, so we could become personal recipients of such love and humility in Christ. You see, fraudulent leadership says, do as I say, not as I do, 
Because fraudulent leadership wants control, but without accountability. True leadership says, do as I say, and as I do, take a look. Fraudulent leadership says, ignore my weaknesses and mistakes, just look past them. True leadership says, look closely at my mistakes and see how they reveal my desperate need for God's grace and look closely at my weaknesses and learn from those too. Imitate me not just in things that I get right, but imitate me in the way that I run to the cross. Imitate me in the way that I am desperate for the grace and mercy of Christ. It requires a certain integrity, which is central to healthy leadership. Fourthly and lastly, to move quickly here, authority and accountability, integrity, and finally, healthy leadership is marked by vulnerability. Vulnerability. As I mentioned before, the apostle points to all the ways in which he and his fellow apostles, leaders, bear suffering, even weakness in their lives in a way that make them seem disqualified as true leaders in the eyes of these worldly Corinthians. How could God actually appoint a leader like that? Who, who speaks so fumblingly like that? Who has so little impressive about their lives like that? The apostle even says that they are like on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena, evoking images of prisoners at the end of a triumphal procession after a war was won, something the Corinthians would have been very familiar with. That after the winning king and his soldiers, there would be prisoners now made into slaves, held captive. Paul says, that's who we are in the eyes of the world. Nothing to look at. Yes, leaders in the church. Leaders, listen, you're not the gladiators. You're the ones that the gladiators are creaming. You're not the lions in the arena. You're the food. Everything that you think might disqualify you for leadership might in fact be the very basis for God's ability to work in you and through you in Jesus' name. If you would dare to bear your leadership with Christ-like vulnerability, letting people see your weakness and even letting your weakness be born through your character. You might have noticed here part of what Paul lists off here is not just his suffering, but even the seemingly weak ways in which they respond to their suffering. In verse 12, when we are cursed, we curse them back. No, we, we bless. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. All the wonderful, mysterious, weak ways in which followers of Christ and bearers of the cross respond even to their hardship and their pain. 
This, dear friends, is a whole different kind of vulnerability and servanthood that God calls you to in leadership. You see, servanthood isn't just a character quality. It's actually the mysterious, glorious kingdom portal power by which the Spirit of God moves through us into the lives of other people. Jesus will use your vulnerabilities. Jesus will use your weakness. He won't just work around them. That's exactly what he's going to take and use as a vessel of love and service and care to another hurting person that needs a little bit more of Christ. And I've seen this again and again in my life, and I don't know if you have as well. Ways in which those very moments when I I felt like I needed a strong word to say, a smart word to say to a person in pain, fumbling along, and that moment was the very thing that made the person feel like they were going to be okay. Because they didn't have someone trying to be perfect in front of them. They knew they were surrounded by a friend also in shambles. A person that needed the grace of God too. Ways in which I've seen that God would use even my own public confession of sin even. My need for the forgiveness of God be the very way in which God would open up a person's heart to the gospel of grace. Ways in which public confession of failure, not to glorify my mistakes as a leader, but ways in which I've seen that begin to shape how people respond to the ministry of the gospel, the way that people feel more included and and welcomed into a community that apparently is safe for broken people because the dudes up front are pretty dang broken too. And so you're invited, of course, to dare to be weak, to be vulnerable, to repent to your child and apologize to your son and daughter because that actually is one of the ways you're going to lead them to a hunger for God's grace. Uh, The way in which you might actually dare to admit your limitations, which no one wants to do, but in a way that actually might become an invitation to other neighbors helping you along that you might actually have interdependency and mutuality on your block because everyone's got something to give and contribute and everyone's got something to take because we're all needy. We all need one another We all need Christ. Or where you are wronged at work, but you refuse to retaliate. And mysteriously, that actually begins to shape the office culture just a little bit because everyone expected you to come back at them with fangs. But mercy changes hearts. It really does. Taking that low place, taking that weak place, it really does become a transforming power. And friends, why should we be surprised at this? Because this itself is the power of the cross. That Jesus would come and give life through his death. That Jesus would come and give transforming power to our lives through the weakness of the cross. That Jesus would actually come and bring the wisdom, the saving wisdom of God through a means that just looks so foolish, so pitiful, so ugly, and yet can become the beauty of God in our lives if we will be weak, if we will be vulnerable, if we will be 
leaders like these. Friends, what kind of followers are you? Friends, what kind of leaders are you following or aspiring to become? Does it look something like the cross of Christ? Let's pray. Jesus, take us, form us, shape us, make us into the kind of followers and leaders that you died and rose again to make us into. Jesus, come. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.